Welcome to another Reading Aloud episode. We're going to be reading aloud, uh, we, I, am going to be reading aloud The Stenic Witch. This is part five of probably six. And uh, we're just finishing up with chapter five, Fashion. And we're about to dive into chapter six, Bitchcraft. I'm hoping that this isn't the only reading you guys are going to be doing. Most people are quarantining themselves or by choice or necessity. Uh, hopefully you're taking this opportunity to catch up on media that you want to catch up on, books included. So um, if you guys can put in the chat room, what are you guys reading? Like I just started Henry James' The Turn of the Screw, which is a very short little novelette, novella. <laughs> and I'm, of course, reading this. I just finished Tarzan of the Apes yesterday which was actually much better than i ever expected it to be and very much uh like set up for the sequel <laughs> return of tarzan or something like that uh rereading the satanic scriptures that's a good one kyle that's a good one sometimes you got to break away from the satanic content though like i'm steeped in it every single day and so for me it's a necessity to break away it's nice to know that uh it's not the case for everyone. So thank you guys for joining in the chat room. I appreciate it. Sparkling Shadows, great to see you. Valeria, how you doing, dear? Kyle, thank you for joining me. And of course, oh, you just started Midas Right, Valeria. That's an interesting one. It's full of some really retarded stuff. <laughs> I mean, it's got some good stuff too. But there's some really shitty stuff in that book. <laughs> I think I'm going to read it next. For these, I'm not entirely positive on that, but I think I'm going to. Anyway, I started the stream early because I'm just sitting here bored. I've got my tea. I'm sipping green tea. I'm the type of idiot, this is straight up true, that because it's St. Patrick's Day, I'm drinking green tea. Not that the tea itself is green, it's just green tea. And I don't know why I chose that because I don't even, I think green tea is wildly overrated. It doesn't even taste good. You can have lemon ginger or uh, turmeric, which is fantastic. Green tea is just like, I don't know. It's like toast. Blah. I don't know. What do you guys think? What's your favorite tea? <laughs> Maybe let me know what your favorite tea is if you like tea. I'm not actually going to be drinking tonight. I, uh... I've got a huge bottle of Jameson back there, but it's during the week and I'm doing my damnedest to be responsible and not consume too much alcohol. I'm prone. And on top of that, I think I'm coming down with something, <laughs> which is not good right now to be coming down with something because who knows what it could be. <laughs> it could be something bad or it could be something not so bad. I don't know. Hopefully. Hopefully it's not the Coronas that I'm coming down with. If I don't show up <laughs> for the next nine cents uh, on Sunday, you'll know that I'm dead. Just so you know. That'll be your the tip of the hat. You know what I'll have to do too? Like if I died from coronavirus, I would have to preemptively shut down my site to make sure that no one tried to buy anything after I was dead because then it would just go to like my PayPal or my account through Stripe or something and you'd never get your shit. There's no way my wife's going to come in here and do this stuff. She doesn't care. 
So, yeah. Maybe not buy anything for the next week just to make sure. <laughs> but even I'm working from home too, which is why I'm on a little bit early. So uh, hopefully, yeah, we'll be in K, Mel. I think maybe. I feel good. I don't know. I, I definitely have something. It's probably just a cold. Knocking on wood there. It's probably just a cold. All right, that being said, how about we just dive in, right? Shall we? Should we just get into it? Yeah. Okay, again, this is uh, accessories in Chapter 5, Fashion, the Witch's Greatest Friend. Accessories. Forget about hats that look like Boer War Campaign numbers, Soviet secret police, Anzac and Roman Lichter models, not to mention French Foreign Legion Kepis. You'll be getting right back into the chrome-plated jumpsuit image. Instead, try a saucy little number or wide sailor and watch the reaction. Gloves are another accessory that can add to your allure. The best kind of jewelry is often the simplest. Flashy rhinestones are fine if you're a dominant personality type. Otherwise, tasteful, even corny necklaces, bracelets, and earrings are in order. Unless you're an exotic type, avoid monstrous earrings and arms full of bracelets. Likewise, ten-pound pendants and yards of beads and necklaces will make you look less like a complete witch and more like a complete fool. The jewelry you wear must add to your appearance by serving as tinsel or frosting on the cake, not as a walking museum collection where the embellishments have their own obvious meaning which will make them the point of interest rather than you. Edith Head, one of the few designers whose creations could be worn by a complete witch, maintains that only if a compliment is directed at how lovely you look rather than what a beautiful dress you're wearing can you truly feel flattered. This is one point which I agree with most notables in the field of fashion. Clothing, jewelry, and other accessories should complement you, not outshine you. If they do overshadow you, the whole point is lost. The only exception to this would be if you have nothing to enhance, which is true of the great number of fanatical fashion followers. If you have a small, tasteful pendant or ring or bracelet that is particular significance to you, by all means wear it so long as it doesn't detract from the rest of you. Concerning amulets. Wear only one at a time, and tastefully, so it looks like a functional piece of jewelry. Would-be witches are notorious for loading themselves up with so much hardware in the form of amulets and talismans that it's a damn good thing they don't really fly on broomsticks since they'd never make it off the runway. Witches, whom I have personally trained, wear a small round amulet bearing the devil's symbol, an inverted five-pointed star with the head of the sabbatic goat superim, uh, superimposed within the points of the pentagram and Hebrew characters around the perimeter of the circle spelling out the name Leviathan another manifestation of the name of Satan. Of course, there are times when it is more feasible to conceal such a talisman and confine one's neckwear to pearls or costume jewelry. If you are clever or rich, it's amazing what can be done, though, and I know witches who have had the above-mentioned amulet wrought in diamonds, rubies, and other precious substances, so at first glance it would not be interpreted as an amulet. Just remember, your ability as a witch has nothing to do with how many pounds of amulets you wear. The only purpose an amulet serves is as a reminder of what you want or represent, 
An amulet can, therefore, give you constant awareness of your role, but constant awareness of your role will not accomplish a thing unless you have what other devices and actions necessary to go with it. Surprisingly short and concise for uh, accessories. I'm one of those people who, like, I've got that. I got my nipple rings in, but you can't see them. And that's it. Like, I don't, I don't have, even my wedding ring I don't wear. I don't have any jewelry at all, because what I want people to notice is me. Uh, maybe my ink, but me. I want them to see my face, my eyes, and use that as a cue to how they interpret what I'm trying to get across. What I, I don't necessarily mind people who wear a whole bunch of different types of jewelry, like 18 different necklaces and a ring on every finger, and I don't, I don't personally mind it. It's really not my bag. And, and I, don't, I don't understand how you could expect to be seen as an individual while you're wearing all that stuff. Because you just look like a jewelry store. I mean, you look like your stereotypical rock and roller or goth queen or, or whatever it is that your style is presenting. But with all that jewelry, again, like the doctor is saying right here, they're not looking at you. They're looking at your pieces. So they better be damn good. Or else you're just totally wasting your time. Uh, sparkling shadows. You have a neck. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Uh, going through a bit of a small obsession again. Yeah, with true crime. That's great. Uh, what's up, Evil Monkey? Christian, how you doing, man? Uh, necklace with an asteroid on it. Nice. All right. Yeah, and that's the other part of it. Um, if you're wearing a piece that's isolated enough to stand out, but not overpowering uh, so as to detract from your own face or presentation... Sometimes it can very much be a, a, a point of discussion or at least something to lure someone in initially with. And then you do your lesser magic on them after they've already caught their eye. Um, what's up, Malcolm? How you doing, man? Socialized psychopath. What up? Yeah, the Baphomet redundancy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sometimes you see it. It's on the shirt. It's on a ring, it's on a lapel pin, it's on a collar, it's on a necklace. It Maybe they have earrings with little pentagrams or something in it. Like, come on. You look like Satan threw up all over your face. Can you just simmer down a little bit? You're trying a little too hard to pull off this bad kid look. <laughs> I mean, jeez. All right. Well, it's nice to know I'm not the only one that thinks this way. <laughs> and all of you who do, dress it up. Hey, if it's your bag, do it. Whatever. You know, <laughs> own it. The next part we're going to go into is color clues for witches. Color clues for witches. This chapter is not going to attempt to tell, by way of the old school of fortune telling, what certain color preferences signify in people. The synthesizer clock will take care of color and personality in a manner that allows for the most subtle gradations in both. If you insist upon reading about how people like red are daring, those who like black are morbid, lovers of yellow are intellectual, etc., etc., buy yourself a copy of dear old Mother Schlocker's old gypsy dream book and oracle or something. 
No matter how proficient you are in your choice of clothes, the wrong color can lessen the impact of your bewitchment. Your most helpful device in choosing the proper colors is the color wheel. Starting with red at 12 o'clock, the corresponding colors of each personality type encircle the synthesizer. If you wish to charm a man, find his position on the circle and choose the color exactly opposite to wear. There are some simple rules which will serve you well if you're observant. The color a man should least likely wear on himself is the color he responds to best on a woman. The color a woman hates worst on herself is the color she will like on a man. This formula is so simple to employ that it requires no involved study of the psychology of color, although modern researchers like Faber-Biren have contributed a great deal towards a comprehensive understanding of the subject. If you look good in red, you may not like to wear the color, but prefer green. When deciding on the proper color or combinations of color, you'll often encounter situations where the last color you would ever choose to wear can be the best for the role you are to play. The vast difference in your apparent type that a simple change from your usual color choice can produce is truly remarkable. Of course, your skin tone and hair color must be taken into consideration. If you have a pinkish complexion, purple is the worst color possible for you. And if your skin has a yellowish color, stay away from the greens. If you're not actually fat, light colors are always sexier than dark ones, as they show more of the contours of your body. Most witches make the mistake of assuming black to be the standard for all clothing. Black can be effective, but must be used with discretion. The color pink is always sure to work magic, as it is the color of feminine intimacy. Likewise, white is always good for a witch who is in doubt as to the best color. If white clothes are worn in an enticing manner, they will often steal the show from all other colors. The erotic stimulation many men derive from nurses stems from the fact that a nurse's uniform is usually figure-revealing, very sound in its basic design, and white. Even the pale blue and green uniforms worn by nurses have the waists where waists should be, a smooth, and thereby tactile, finish, and a fitted line. If nurses and waitresses get more than their share of attention from men, it's only because they're often the only women around who wear clothes that make them look like women. Bright colors of any kind are best worn by witches of a more dominant personality type, although, as with a red hair dye job, a loud color dress on a usually mild-mannered girl will often do wonders to change your personality. When you wear loud colors, you automatically place yourself in a position to attract men from the lower half of the synthesizer clock. When you dress in pastels, muted or toned-down colors, you will appeal to the males on the top half of the clock. Owing to the fact that as far as their ECI, erotic crystallization inertia, is concerned, men are still young boys. They will most often pick bright red as a preference. Every witch that isn't a bona fide fatty should have at least one bright red dress, whether she can stand it or not. Also a pink and a white. If you have these basics, you need never worry about not having a thing to wear witchery-wise. Then, if you wish to get mysterious, you can always wear black. But don't say I didn't tell you when you find out that the pink, white, or red dresses did what the black one couldn't. Of course, if you're really overweight, black is best. It's a shame that certain colors are almost sure to steal the show, but being realistic is a large part of being a complete witch. Don't think for one moment, though, that the color of your dress is more important than the law of the forbidden. Sexual compulsions will invariably win out if a contest is at hand. 
Don't delude yourself that by donning a scarlet mini-dress over your pantyhose and chunky shoes, you'll be a competition for a gal of equal looks who is using the formula and wearing a beige suit. Color is important, but must be employed as a single ingredient, not as the sole magical weapon. You probably wonder where browns and grays fit in on the color wheel. Browns, beiges, tans, etc. are all variants of the yellows, golds, orange yellows, and oranges that make up the earth section of the clock and are hum uh, harmonious with all of the colors on the left side. For example, everything from green at 6 o'clock to red at 12 o'clock can be mixed with browns and remain compatible color-wise. Try and mix violet or blue from the other side, and you get an ugly mess. The same formula applies to gray on the right side of the clock. All colors in this section are compatible with gray from red to green, and blue to gray, and or add blue to gray, and it works fine. Likewise, green or violet. Just try mixing yellow or orange with gray and see the awful results. Those occupying a 6 or 12 o'clock position can easily go in either direction. However, neither grays nor browns will be quite as effective as on those to the far right or left of the circle. A good clue to a man's position on the synthesizer may be given by the color he chooses in clothing. If he wears a necktie, the one that appears to be his favorite should tell you to wear the color directly opposite on the color wheel. Many witches think that to get on the good side of a man it helps to wear matching outfits and nothing could be more ill-advised. Girls who go out and buy a red sweater to match their boyfriend's red shirt give a Bobsy Twins ring to the whole affair and unwittingly encourage a platonic relationship. I have had numerous would-be witches come to me for tuition wearing slinky black outfits, assuming I will be impressed, because they might have seen me on a TV show or in a magazine wearing black. I do appreciate their thoughtfulness, but hasten to inform them that a man who goes around wearing black clothes all the time, of his own choice, would prefer to see a woman wearing light or pastel colors. Most businessmen who must wear black or gray suits, however, respond strongest to girls in loud, bright colors. This illustrates why subjective, objective preferences must be taken into consideration in a person's choice of clothing colors. For example, a person who wears a lot of black objectively, such as a waiter, priest, musician, concert artist, etc., cannot be typed accurately by one who wears black because he loves it is a different story. I have found that people who prefer to wear black actually favor the color red, but refrain from wearing it because they are often introverted. The man who wears black clothing of his own choice will seldom respond to loud colors on a woman, but the wearer of black who must can be judged by the color of his car. Unless he has no choice in the matter, his car color will tell you a lot. Again, just consult the synthesizer and appear in the opposite color from his car. If his car is a drab or nondescript color or one of the practical colors, such as light green, pale blue, beige, or tan, he needs a gaudy wench, so bedazzle him with your color. If his automobile is bright red, black, white, or some exotic color, don't think you need to compete and wear your loudest colors. There's a good reason for this. If his car represents his apparent self's color choice, he wants his woman to be the opposite. If his car represents his demonic self, then it'll take a lot more than a crimson dress to woo him away from his red fiberglass lover. No matter what, it's bad witchery to dress in the color of his car. The same factors apply concerning living quarters. It might look good in the movies to see a gal in her all-white bedroom wearing white, 
but it just doesn't work that way and is limited to publicity photos. No man wants to be overwhelmed by the room about him when he's trying to get to first base with a woman, and having the room in identical colors to what its occupant is wearing does just that. It fairly yells at him, You'd better please me, too! Or, like a chaperone, Just what do you think you're going to do to us? When decorating a room in the right color is an issue, the ideal witching room would be one with revolving or changeable walls of different colors. If one is to really explore the potential effects color can produce, opportunity and facility for quick changes must be present, which is often easier said than done. The simplest means to attain such color modifications is through the use of lighting. A small spotlight against the base of one wall, mounted in a housing which will hold removable colored filters, is the ideal arrangement. Then, if you want a blue wall one night, you can change it to pink the next. Despite what you may think, black is an ideal color for a witch's den of iniquity. As any color accessory can be used, any color clothing can be worn, and you will be the star performer at all times. Black is limitless in its perspectives and a small room can lose any confining quality it might have had if painted another color. It used to be thought that a black room would be restrictive, depressing, and morbid, but there are highlights of any sort in furnishings, art, rugs, or draperies. You can't go wrong with black walls. In addition to its adaptability for decorating, a black room is the most restful when the lights are off and totally devoid of distraction when you want to read or work. Not to mention it makes an ideal ceremonial chamber for your magical rituals. Another tip. Red carpeting has proven itself to be the most conductive to keeping people in a room. So don't use it if you want a fast turnover of visitors. People naturally linger on red carpet. And restaurants and bars that want to keep their places full have found it to be one of the greatest assistants. I have found that a room with black walls and ceiling with bright red carpeting will make people lose track of time completely, especially if the room is rather long and narrow. If you want to use mirrored walls in your room, be extremely careful that you don't have more than one wall so covered. You know how distracting the mirrors in a beauty shop can be when one mirrored wall is opposite another, especially if one wall is slightly off parallel from the other. With certain colors and the proper deviations in the placement of mirrors, the most horrible crimes and raging madness can transpire, and you don't want to be the loser in such cases. It's the end of chapter five. Man, oh man, who ever knew there was such thought to go into the color of your walls? But I guess that's a good question, because how often... Are you witches dragging people back to your den? It seems like... I don't know. And, and maybe this is just from my era or something. It seems a little dangerous to drag someone back to your den. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's home ground so it makes it safer. I don't know. What do you guys think? I uh, can't stand plastic. I'm with you there, Malcolm. In the 90s, there was this huge shift in what gothic wear meant. When I was coming up, all of the goth gals were referred to as vintage goth. There was a lot of lace, silk, satins, um, light fabrics that flowed nicely. If you imagine, you know, a, a graveyard 
with uh, a nice mild wind drifting by, well, the goth women would have their clothes drifting a bit too. And if it revealed maybe a stocking on a thigh, all the better. Now, or at least certainly in the 90s, uh, that shifted to skin-tight plastics. Um, and not even real leather in most cases, like vinyl. I never understood that. And I don't know if it was a direct transformation from one gothic look to another, or if it's just this fashion shift that happened at the same time and it was picked up by some goths. But I never dug it, man. Never dug it once. Uh, I do have to say, as a man who owns a bright blue car, I would feel uncomfortable if I had a woman in bright blue clothing matching it. That seems weird to me. Uh, I like the idea of wearing stark white <laughs> because it draws your attention, uh, obviously. I think um, I would never... Like, I have, I have a, a maroon shirt that is as dangerously close to red as I will ever get. Um, but I'm certainly more on the earth tones, blues spectrum. I don't know. I don't know if that has any relation to my position on the clock or if I just don't want to stand out in a crowd on a day-to-day -day basis. If I want to stand out, I'm going to be dressing up and I'm going to want people to pay attention then, not in my day-to-day -day life. Uh, it's really too much black for your seven o'clock ass. <laughs> You can understand wanting to attract the right people if it brings all back to what was spoken about in the last episode, nice sense. Well, and this is what we need to understand is that all of the tactics that he's giving you in this are meant to be adhered to when you're trying to attract others or, you know, for whatever reason, not just, you know, a lover um, or a one night stand or something. But if you want to hold any authority over another human being, these are the tactics that will give you a little bit of that edge. And it, it's all supposed to work together. So again, like you know, uh, the doctor mentioned in here, don't expect as an accessory to uh, overpower uh, the law of the forbidden or the complete package that you're supposed to be putting together. And so when you're going on a regular professional day-to-day -day basis, if you're not trying to manipulate your boss or other coworkers, it doesn't matter as much. You should just be happy within your own skin on what you look like. But if you are actively trying to manipulate other people, that's when you need to really dive into this stuff because that's when you're going to get the most out of it. Blue's great. Yeah, I love blue. Pale women look amazing in red. Yeah, and I got to say, I'm not a huge red fan, but I did grow up in the 80s primarily. And so... Like that was the thing in the 80s. Big, big monstrous hair, bright red lipstick, bright red dresses that were crazy tight. I mean, that was just kind of it. Like bright red cars. That was my era, man. It could be Christian. I think that's interesting. The re that's the reason why the doctor put these in the order he did. Um, perhaps, yeah, yeah. Nice. Your eyes are green. You found that deep greens and reds do amazing things. That's the other part of it is that not everyone has these brilliant 
solid colored eyes. And so what you wear brings out different tones in your eyes often. So, uh, I mean, if I'm wearing blue, my eyes pop really hard with blue. Sometimes they do in other clothes, but mainly if I'm wearing blue. Um, and so that's something that I think everyone should be playing around with a little bit is exploring different colors, finding out what works for you. Because ultimately, if you've always gone with the colors that you, your mom bought you when you were a little kid or, you know, your girlfriend picked out for you or something, you don't really, and I'm saying this as a guy, but equally for, uh, women, if you know, your, your spouse or lover or something has always told you, you should wear X or Y find out what actually you feel good in because that's going to lead to your confidence, which is going to lead to more effective, lesser magic workings ultimately, you know, I mean, I made the mistake of once picking out a dress for my wife <laughs> with my daughter to be fair, but big mistake, never do it again, did not work from now on. I just let her do what makes her happy because she always looks good. And anytime I try to throw my two cents in, I fuck it up anyway. So <laughs> stay out of that one. If a little suggestion for the fellers. All right, let's get into bitchcraft, shall we? Let me take a sip real quick. Satan me. It's a nice mug too. Absolutely, Christian. Absolutely. Six, bitchcraft. Virtue is its own punishment. Nice girls lose. And one of the surest signs of potential proficiency in witchcraft is an inability to get along with other women. This doesn't mean that you should not know how to get along with members of your own sex because a successful witch can. It simply implies that you are certain to meet with disapproval from many women when you are not purposely trying to gain their approval. If you go around worrying about impressing women who, of course, love nothing better than to know you care about what they think, that automatically places you at their mercy. Outside of an admittedly homosexual group, all social circles that are composed of exclusively men or women serve as retreats rather than boosts. To a group of highly successful businessmen, an exclusively male organization can serve as either a retreat or contract ground for further business goals. This in many ways makes sense, but for women, who are for better or worse, 99% dependent upon the support of men, to congregate together seeking each other's approval, it is at best commiseration at worst. Ego-shattering delusion and at all times indicative that something is missing in the way of erotic or emotional fulfillment. Every witch needs a friend, just as anybody else, but unless you can be the leader in a group of women, forget it. No other gal is going to lead you down the path of success unless there's something in it for her, romantically, financially, or vicariously. And for that matter, neither are very many men. At least when pleasing a man, you possess the little something different, which makes all the difference the representation of the, his demonic self. I've found that most proficient witches are those who prefer the company of men to that of women. I'm sure everyone reading this has lost out at one time or another simply because she is only concerned with her responsibility to another girl. Chances are good that 
other girl planned and plotted very carefully whatever move it was that led to your romantic or domestic failure, yet was never once looked upon as a villain by anyone else. If you will think back on your own personal situation, the other girl involved was one who didn't quite have the things going for her that you did. Maybe she was single and you were married, and she envied you for your smooth-running marriage or handsome husband. Or possibly she was married to a real churl while your husband was a prize. Maybe it was an economic jealousy or one inflamed by your talents or knowledge or possibly looks. Wait a minute, you say. The woman I have in mind was very good looking and I should look that good. It couldn't be that. Don't forget what you've read earlier in this book. Your standards of female beauty don't count. Naturally, you will think a gal is a real doll who looks like you would like to look, and invariably, she will be your complete opposite type. A girl's worst enemy is always one who is the same physical type as herself, with slight modifications, and her best friend is the complete opposite of herself. If you are tall with an angular face, your best friend will be short with a round face. If you are fair-skinned and blue-eyed, your best friend will be olive-skinned with dark eyes. These are not oversimplifications, but excellent examples. The similarity in appearance between you and your worst enemy is an important factor in the ability a witch can have to predict those who will bear watching. Therefore, there are two types of women to watch out for and who will take away what you have or at least spoil your happiness if given half a chance. The first is the girl who is similar in appearance to yourself but not quite as pretty. The second is the one who is totally opposite in appearance but not quite as pretty. If it sounds as though I'm contradicting myself, consider this. It's easy enough to pass judgment on a girl who looks like she might be your sister, finding all kinds of faults in her appearance. For this reason, an objective physical evaluation is seldom made of a woman who resembles in any way the person who is passing judgment. Two girls of identical appearance will be certain to find many flaws in the physical makeup of each other that would be lacking in whoever was speaking. Therefore, the old cliché must be considered before negative judgment is passed. What does she have that I lack, appearance-wise? If you cannot find anything, then you'll find her to be no real threat, but one who would like to be. Concerning other women of totally opposite types, the reverse is true when it comes to evaluating beauty. If a girl who looks like you will invariably get a non-objective and critical evaluation, your female opposite will receive plaudits for her good looks, even though she might be sadly wanting for allure. Here is where the lurking menace lies. Because your opposite and often best friend is seen in a non-threatening light, you are willing to credit her with a degree of beauty she very often lacks. While you tell others of her beauty, they listen, and they look, and possibly they are not impressed, and she knows it, but you, you fool, don't. Resentment builds, and out of resentment, however deeply buried, will come outlets for it. Little plots are hatched, and soon you'll find yourself saddled with a genuine psychic vampire who will drain you of your vital energy and actually weep and moan, and not out of happiness, whenever something nice happens to you. And you, sweet, nice, virtuous, understanding thing that you are, pick right up on those vibrations, those feelings that there's something wrong. You concern yourself all the more with your friend and her welfare, as by now she is bound to have developed several problems. 
make a little test and tell a friend you suspect of becoming a rival of some wonderful thing that has just happened or is about to happen, even if you have to invent it. Then watch her problems begin. Observe how her illness flares up, or financial problems suddenly appear, or she bangs her car up, or her child's tonsils become infected right now. If she shows her hand after three such tests, you can be sure you don't need her for a friend. I've written in my Satanic Bible, Thrice cursed are the weak, whose insecurity makes them vile. And these types can be very vile indeed, yet hide their viciousness admirably. All this falls into the classification of resentment, and resentment and disapproval go hand in hand. To be a resourceful witch, you must be able to see the bitchiness in other women for exactly what it is, then in your own way, beat them at their own game. You must learn to be a worse bitch than they. It is more difficult for women to be a bitch than a witch, and the nice gal that everyone likes so well usually winds up on the short end unless she has already attained a position of real security. In the business world, the most successful women are those who have used their feminine wiles in reaching the top, not really concerning themselves about the other women's approval, but concentrating on bewitching men. Then, once they have reached the top, they can easily charm other women. They have become strong enough so that other women, knowing themselves to be in a much lesser position, either refrain from venting their envy, refuse to entertain it in the first place, or, if they are stupid enough to try, make fools of themselves. Nice girls do lose in most cases. A girl who is every other girl's big buddy is a drag to most men. Nothing bores a man more than to hear about all the wonderful qualities of female friends. Listen to a girl talk about other men might make the man angry, but hearing all about your sweet and harmonious friendship with other women will sicken and bore him. If you start to talk about your hostile feelings toward another woman, though, his ears will perk up. A man won't like you as a bitch if your bitchiness is directed towards him, nor will he cater to it if it endangers his profession or the feelings of people of whom he is concerned. Otherwise, he will usually be quite titillated by your bitchiness towards other women. As a test, voice your wrath for another woman, even if non-existent, in the presence of a man you know, calling her every name in the book. He'll be all ears and probably ask you to describe, to describe your foe's appearance. Describe her as being built about the same as yourself and in a manner that will convey the idea that she is attractive without you actually saying so. Your listener will be supplied with vicarious fantasies, associations, and projections, the complexities of which need not be understood in order to be brought forth. The main thing you will prove by his interest and attention is that men like bitches. They find them scintillating and sexually stimulating, and it doesn't matter whether you're dominant or passive by nature. <laughs> uh, I will say this. I like a woman who, if it comes to it, can scrap. Absolutely. And that may, in some cases, be with me. I don't like pushovers. But... If there's something I cannot abide, it is resting bitch face. <laughs> it's the worst. And if you don't know what resting bitch face is, let me try to try it out for you. <clears throat> it's like they're smelling a fart at every point. But there are actually people who have this look at every point in their life. That's just their natural resting face.
So I would suggest this. If you have resting bitch face, look in the mirror and change it. Not for me. Who gives a fuck what I think? For your own successes. There's no possible way you're ever going to manipulate anyone if you have a constant resting bitch face. Ugh. But, again, don't mind if you're bitchy. I really don't. All right, what are you guys talking about? Happy birthday, Sean. If it is your birthday. It's someone's birthday. Whomever that is. Happy birthday. Hell you. Opposites attract. Yeah, be a classy bitch. You guys do know what I'm talking about, though, right? The bitch face? Ugh, it's the worst. The worst. I can't stand it. Uh, we're going through identifying our friends through the chapter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a strategic bitch. That's a good one. All right. <clears throat> yeah, see, Sean? You know what I'm talking about. Now, I've known some, some ladies like that. A, a dude with resting bitch face just looks like a guy trying to be tough. And so it's not a big deal. A girl with resting bitch face looks like a fucking bitch. <laughs> like, you don't want to walk up to her, even if she's stunning. Because you already know the vibe that she's projecting without her even knowing she's projecting it. That's the worst part, I think. Is that whatever your face looks like, your natural musculature, you can do this and change it. Right? You have muscles in your face that you can manipulate and change. In the absence of knowing that, I could understand your ignorance, but witches should know better. You should better know better. Change your face. Especially if you're trying to put a vibe off there. Unless, of course, that vibe is bitch. Then do your thing. <laughs> I've read this one before, and I've discussed it in a past um, satanic essay reading. Taking advantage of men who think they're taking advantage of you. But we're going to do it again here because in the chapter and we're gonna have fun with it here's the thing too us as guys we always assume we have the upper hand even when we clearly don't because typically we think we're smarter and usually we're clearly not and so you automatically have an upper hand on us <laughs> like above and beyond that's why i think it's so important for guys to read this too because we don't know how stupid we are, how controlled we are by our lizard brain, until someone points it out to us. And then we can evolve. But until that point, what dumb. Just a big bag of dumb. All right, here we go. Taking advantage of men who think they're taking advantage of you. I mentioned earlier in this book that even the most worthless male can be employed by a witch, if for no other reason than to increase her power. Whether or not you wish to attract undesirable males for sexual purposes is your own business, for it can not only be risky, but also a nuisance. Still, the psychic energy and panting suitor, creep and pest pour out to you, can be a readily available source of power. If these types have nothing else to offer, they have their enthusiasm, which equals the most unbridled form of lust. 
Let's compare them to a 25-watt light bulb, which is bright enough to read by in a small room but could hardly illuminate a ballpark. The world is full of these 25-watt types, who have nothing really to offer a girl yet think they're entitled to the best. They won't do anything to improve themselves, and even if they wanted to, their little 25-watt brains, emotions, and limits of responsibility couldn't take the extra charge. The filament would simply give out. Whenever such a man succeeds in landing a desirable woman, who might be equivalent to, say, 100 watts, he can't expect to light her bulb single-handedly. He might give her enough of a glow to take him home, but it will take three more like him to keep her happy. If he is as wise as most 25 waters, he will be deceived by the woman of his fancy and either not even know it or go out and get into fights over her, much to her delight. If he's a rare exception, who knows he's limited to 25 watts of power, he'll keep her a lot longer, maybe even permanently, realizing that it's better to have 25% of a good thing than 100% of nothing. This same analogy applies to women of low wattage who desire high-voltage males. An example is the counter-girl who rings the doorbell of the movie star and practically rapes him in his home, then complains six months later that that lousy actor is a big phony who makes love to a girl until, she's tired of, until he's tired of her, and then gives her the boot. Instead of reflecting upon the hundred watts of power the actor jolted into her 25-watt psyche and rejoicing for the experience, she goes away assuming she gave him something special. She did, in a way, but so do millions of other women who go to sleep with the actor's picture under their pillows. And that is precisely why he is the 100 watt and she is the 25. What you as a witch accumulate in the way of lust power from others will in turn give you greater magnetic power over others. This is why, as the witch declared while she peed in the ocean, every little bit helps. In some cases, the brightness of a person of greater magnitude can rub off on one who is of lower intensity and cause an increase in wattage in the low-wattage person. Suffice to say, in such cases, a magical technique is employed that would assume the equivalent of a rewiring job. Under most circumstances, the kind of man who wouldn't want to know, who practically drools over you and makes a pest of himself and can't understand why he can't have you, is a pretty hopeless case. He could buy every metaphysical course that was available, burn candles, study the black arts, and burst his peapod brain trying to figure out what is wrong with him, never realizing that he might need a shave, or the front of his trousers cleaned, or something more flattering than that nice old windbreaker jacket. Aleister Crowley used to say that every man and woman is a star, which is very true. What some of the most involved occult scholars often fail to realize, however, is that stars are of varying magnitudes. Don't refrain from displaying your witchy charms, thinking you already received enough attention. Each 25-watt man who sees you and goes home and masturbates with you in mind is unknowingly performing a magical ritual which will, for at least a second or two, throw every one of his entire 25 watts of power into your very being, and you, in turn, will become even more desirable. It doesn't matter that he is unintelligent, gross, coarse, unkempt, or in any other way undesirable. His whole will, born of his animal lust, is throwing a small charge into your battery and therefore making it stronger. As I have previously stated, movie goddess don't go to bed with the men that actually keep them on their pedestals. They don't need to.
There are many men who will think you're fair game just because you may have let slip that you're a witch. Right away, they'll ask you to prove it, or assume you're ready to violate a few taboos by coming directly into the sack. Or else they'll ask you to tell their fortune, feigning a great interest in the occult, invariably bringing astrology and ESP into the conversation. They will be so serious with you and your art and nod understandingly as you describe spells and charms. They will also suggest that you help them in their search for esoteric wisdom and teach them the ropes. Some will tell you that they are warlocks and the only thing to do is to get together for some kind of ritual, i.e. go to bed. Every witch soon learns the thousand and one approaches of the man who thinks he is taking advantage of her. Remember what I told you earlier. The most frantic men are the ones who want the slap in the face from a woman they can respect. Here's how you do it. Here's how you can have your cake and eat it too. As long as they are so intent on using your witchiness as their seduction device, take advantage of it. Tell them, yeah, you can teach them all these things. You can explain the type of magic in which they seem so interested. Yes, you can even practice sex magic with them. You'd be delighted to. All the while, you're employing the law of the forbidden, keeping your quarry all fired up, his head nodding in agreement on everything you tell him. Of course, you don't really tell him anything of the real magic, just that hackneyed old crap that he expects to hear about Tannis Root and High John the Conqueror and your magic circle you stand within and how you gave that old biddy at the office a boil on her bottom. After enough of this, explain that you feel he has a great deal of psychic force that you'd like to use, but it will require something of a sexual nature. At this point, you can be sure he'll still be with you, and you won't really be lying either. Continue describing how the only way you can be sure of his latent power is through the use of a special ESP sex ritual. He must, for a period of one month, each time at a specific night of the week rolls around and at a precise time light a red candle, place it over a piece of parchment bearing your name, and for one hour think of you as hard as he can, allowing himself to become excited to the point of an orgasm. Explain that he is not under any circumstances to attempt to contact you in the meantime, or it will show his inability to follow the instructions which will be necessary when you later get together for closer contact, and you'll have to forget you ever met him. At the end of one month, you explain, you will notify him as to where he should meet you for further instructions. Of course, he will follow your instructions if he is frantic for you. He will also supply you with some witch power in the bargain, and you will never call him. In fact, you will do your best to forget about him, thus ensuring his added fervor. If he's just playing the field and doesn't care that much about you, chances are good he won't bother doing what you tell him. But then, he wouldn't have been compelled enough to do you any good magically anyway, so you're not out anything. Don't let your conscience bother you about taking the poor guy's magical energy and not even thinking about him. He would have taken your sexual favors, and he has the chance, and most likely thought you just another conquest. If you live in a town where everybody knows everybody else and you can't disappear, or if you ever run into the guy again, act very disappointed in him, telling him you didn't receive a thing in the way of vibrations by adding that maybe if he tries some more he will improve. If he isn't sufficiently insulted by all this, it's because you have placed everything on an occult basis, the very same basis in which he first approached you.
If you were to tell a man to get lost after flirting with him or giving him a leg show, he would simply call you an insulting term, implying that you are a tempter of men's sexual parts and go away in a huff. In this case, you're not telling him to get lost, but to go home and jack off in such a manner that for him to become offended, he would have to deny all of his previous deep interest in learning what you could impart of witchery. His meaningful search for the hidden secrets would be exposed as a sham. He has no choice but to follow your instructions. If he, by some chance, really is versed in the magical arts, he cannot be offended, and he will know that what you are telling him to do is magically valid and credit you with knowing your trade. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, I think this requires a wee bit of um, understanding, I think. Or certainly, certainly a certain type of understanding, right? Because satanic magic, uh, as outlined in the satanic Bible, is a dynamically transmittable force generated from your adrenal energies, your sheer vitality. If you have other people so, uh, so you have to have that as a basis. You have to accept that if I'm going to believe in satanic magic, I need to believe in dynamically transmittable force generated by adrenal energies. Now, if you've got that understanding, not everyone does, not everyone needs to, whatever, then this makes infinitely more sense. If you don't see satanic magic that way, and you think it's just pure psychodrama and there's nothing else to it well then this may not be as powerful a tool to you if you're actually expecting to get the energy out of it if instead you're just fucking with the dude by all means <laughs> right like he it doesn't it, either way it doesn't matter to him it's all about you if you're really trying to watt up your bulb as it were you know draw in however many watts this douchebag has to give you, then I do think if it's not just in your head, need to believe in that idea. And I've run into so many different types of Satanists who see satanic magic and understand it in so many different types of ways. I cannot pretend as if there is a right or wrong way to perceive it. It is entirely up to you as a Satanist. That being said, I did feel like I should point that out, because if you don't understand that, then you wouldn't have understood this. I mean, it's, it's just sort of basic primer type information, you know? Um, all right, what do you guys have up in here's? Um, I love that come hither look. I dig that a lot. All right, hold on a second. Hey, dog. I'm going to put you up here. All right. Women too. What's the saying about treating a princess like a whore and a whore like a princess? Well, we just covered that earlier in this book for sure. Alan, I am doing as well as I can act like I'm doing well. <laughs> Actually, yesterday... I mean, this morning I was pretty woozy too, but uh, yesterday I, I, I slept for like 10 hours last night because I was so out of it. 
And today, uh, I'm feeling a little bit better now. Maybe it's because of the energy that we're passing back and forth. But um, this morning was not good at all. So hopefully, I'm on the up and up. Uh, in your experience, women to... Oh yeah, we already did that. Uh, that made me remember the scene of Wolf of Wall Street. Dude, that is such a good show. Ugh, that film is great. <clears throat> All right, that was just the section, Sparkling Shadows. We got more to cover, so let's just go ahead and do it. Yeah, this is what we're doing here, Sean. We are <laughs> we are social distancing. <laughs> we live in such a weird time that this is even a thing that's going on and that we have the ability to communicate as if we were in the same room while it's going on. First time in history of mankind. Like, think about that for a second. It's wild. Just wild. All right. I need these. How and when to lie. It has often been stated, the truth hurts. If the truth were known to people concerning the whys and wherefores of their own actions, very few situations would be entered into. The wile and guile of the proficient witch will never be resented because she knows how to pet, flatter, and butter up her quarry. You can tell anyone anything, and he will accept it, so long as enough flattery accompanies it. Even though what you say may be preposterous, if you can compel a man's sexual interest, he will go along with whatever you say. The only thing holding people back from doing things they would like is the lack of an excuse. The reason white witchcraft is so appealing to people is because it gives them an excuse to practice the black arts by calling them white. If a man wants to look at prostitutes and shady characters, yet maintain his respectability, he can be a sociologist. If he likes to hear lurid, sordid, or spicy stories, he can be a priest, psychiatrist, or guidance counselor. If he likes to look at dead bodies, a mortician or embalmer, women's vagina, a gynecologist, women's feet, a shoe salesman. If he likes to eat, he can be a chef. If he wants to wield power over others, he will practice hypnotism. I'm sure you can supply many other examples. This doesn't mean that everyone enters a profession or trade simply to legitimize their fascinations and compulsions. There are many who do, however, and for these socially acceptable outlets, allow them to indulge their passions. You, as a witch, must know how to allow others to do what they really want. You don't have to make most people do what you want of them. Just find a way of making it fit into their natural interests, then supply a rationale. Innumerable accounts have been related about ministers who consorted with women of loose morals in order to save them. And as many jokes tell of a clever holy substitutions in nomenclature in order to justify sexual acts. To many persons, hypnosis is an outlet for erotic gratification in that it allows the subject to engage in acts that would normally be repressed. One of the most common fallacies about hypnosis is that the subject will not engage in any act that he would not normally do. If a girl with sex on her mind goes to a fairly desirable hypnotist for her nail-biting, and the hypnotist regresses her, causing her to become convinced she is in a previous incarnation, she will gladly and without guilt sexually submit to the hypnotist, even though she may be married at the time. The hypnotist merely needs to place her in a period in her history where she wouldn't be married to her present husband, and everything will be okay. All she needed was an excuse to which she could attach significance. Of course, she will never be able to question a belief in reincarnation, no matter how logical the argument against it might seem. 
To do so would place her conscience in jeopardy, so objectivity is out of the question. I've seen many examples of sexual feelings being interpreted as other phenomena. For example, when a pattern has been established of religious fervor accompanied by strong sexual feeling, the believer can never allow herself, for this phenomenon is most prevalent in females, to recognize such feelings for what they really are, so long as she is experiencing joy or suffering, agony or ecstasy on a religious level, the orgasms can come by the dozen. But just let anyone place her in a position where she will need to reinterpret her experiences and you're in trouble. Don't ever take away a convenient falsehood. If you remove, uh, remove certain conventional lies, you will be hated for it. Most people need lies. This is one of the most important reasons why you, as a witch, must learn to lie when, is it ex when it is expected of you. The consistency of your image depends upon it. So long as you know the truth, that's all that matters. There are two kinds of lie. The first is the lie that people want to hear. If you have ascertained that your quarry expects to hear certain things, you must tell him what he wants to hear, no matter how far-fetched or unable you are to back up what you say. You'll encounter the need for this type of lie regularly in fetish-finding and in your public relations as a witch. The second type of lie is the one that will gain you credit and recognition, whether others want to hear it or not. This is the kind of lie you must be careful with. This is the sort of lie that causes failure in almost everyone who practices it. This is the type of idle boasting that places your foot firmly into your mouth and causes no one to take you seriously after they get to know you. Remember, a smart witch may not be taken seriously at first, but later will be viewed with seriousness. The failure might convince his audience in his, of his depth in the beginning, but soon as he is exposed as a fool when his false front disappears. And just how is this phony facade exposed in such a devastating manner? Because he never mastered the fine art of lying. In order to master the art of lying, you must first master a few other things. The great impostor, Fred Damara, will always command a certain degree of respect because he could actually do the things for which he claimed legitimate standing. There's nothing wrong with saying you sing at Carnegie Hall and you could have stood in the doorway at midnight and hummed a few measures, but if you open your mouth to sing at the next party and it sounds rotten, you have just, as they say, blown it. If, however, you have sung the lead in your local civic light opera production of Naughty Marietta and were acclaimed as an exceptionally talented singer, and you happen to be in an affair where your quarry will be suitably impressed and possibly arranged for you to go on tour with an important new show, a type 2 lie is in order. Tell him you've sung wherever you like, before crowned heads, etc., because when he asks you to sing, if you can back your contrived pedigree up with action, those very lies you told will not be questioned and will pay off. If you haven't told them, he might never have asked to listen to you. If it is subsequently discovered that you made up the whole story, yet you are fulfilling your role as a singer, the people who count won't care one bit about your little sham. The only ones who will get up in arms, demand your removal, yet secretly gloat over your exposure, will be those who are your inferiors in the first place. Study, hard work, perseverance, and conscientiousness should be rewarded, and if you've gone out of your way to excel at something, use it as a credibility device. Don't tell lies about your achievements unless you can produce if the tools are placed into your hands. 
Don't tell people about the movie contract you passed up if your appearance is less than stunning, without expecting a few questioning glances. If you are an absolute knockout and say the same thing, people might not believe you, but at least they'll think, well, if she hasn't been spotted by a director, she sure ought to be. If you proclaim yourself a great enchantress and then proceed to tell everyone in the room all of your problems, you're no witch. If you sit down to advise another woman about her domestic situation and have gone through a succession of four-bum marriages, could you really expect anyone to attach much validity to your advice? Would you be foolish enough to counsel a friend on child-raising if your three children have been living with their grandma for all but one year of their lives? Self-aggrandizing lies will always be consistent with your actual abilities. Don't employ them unless you can't back them up with action. If you want to lie, you'll get more than enough practice on individuals who demand that you lie to them in order that their own interpretations, delusions, preconceptions, and moralisms will not be offended. In this way, you'll be able to lie with a light heart, knowing you're being kind to others and giving them the opportunities to do things and think things that they crave. It is the only humane thing to do. Lie and give pleasure. Lie and soothe consciences. Lie and supply the food for the ego that truth can seldom provide. Lie and become a hero, for whatever lies are popular will always win votes. Lie, but be not yourself deluded by your lies, lest you lose control. For he who loses control over his own motivations can never progress to a proficiency in sorcery. This is a very dangerous section, because if you don't understand that last little bit, you're going to think that anyone who lies is a, a, a solid individual worth following. In fact, here in America, we have a liar-in-chief who is terrible at it, who believes his own lies, and yet there's so many people who follow him and say, yeah, he's lying, but don't they all lie? Except, in his particular case, he's doing it to himself. That's stupidity. That's a sin. And it doesn't begin and end with that douchebag. There are a plethora of other human beings that we all know in our lives that are the worst liars that you can clearly see through that provide no ammunition for their lie and just let it spill out of their mouth like so much vomit after drinking too much all night, which many of you are going to be doing tonight. <laughs> You got, I, I like this section because it teaches you to temper your lies. There's nothing wrong with lying. Every situation can be improved upon if done with a well-crafted lie. Sometimes it's, no, that doesn't make your ass look big. <laughs> Sometimes it's, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, I think you did great in that performance. Whatever the case, if you're going to lie about yourself and not just to make someone else feel good about their um, uh, behaviors or performances, make sure you can deliver the goods. And, and, and this is so incredibly important because I, I did like the part where he was talking about um, the actor, uh, you know, saying that they were passed up a role. But if they look like they could have had the role, then people won't care as much if it's a lie. And the not caring bit I think is even better because if you're caught in a lie, then you are then branded a liar and trust has just immediately seeped out of you. 
But if you're caught in a well-crafted lie, people appreciate the sort of creativity involved in it. And they're going to be more forgiving to future lies and more believing of them as well, whether they're aware of it or not. This is what I love so much about it. This is like the best. Ah, what other religion teaches you how to lie? <laughs> so good. Oh, it's so good. All right, guys, what are you guys doing? Satanic social distancing study group. <laughs> Say that 10 times fast. Yeah, Zachary, it's the worst. Oh, my gosh. And it's so obvious. I Clearly, they're fooling themselves, pathological liars, but only an idiot believes it. And then why would you then, after having realized them for being what they are, continue to expose yourself to them? Because then they believe that it's working. <laughs> Ugh. Kills me. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right, dog. That's exactly right. All right, <clears throat> we are one hour in. We got one more to go, people. I wonder how far we're going to get through this. I got to tell you, like, there's a pretty big chunk of bibliography. So we only got that much left. I'm not going to get it today, but next time for sure. And it probably won't be a two-hour episode either. All right. Seminary does. Yeah. Learn to be stupid. It has been said that a donkey should never be sent to college because nobody likes a smart ass. Very few men like a woman who asserts her intelligence and the truly smart witch will demonstrate how intelligent she is rather than pay lip service to her mental prowess through the use of an awesome vocabulary. Of course, nothing turns a man off more than an utterly stupid woman, except one whose speech is laced with highly technical, analytical, and clinical expressions when they are not needed. Countless comedy characterizations have been based on the pseudo-intellectual woman, yet there are plenty of them in our midst. With these types, words become a substitute for sex appeal, for these women hate the fact that they were born as women and want to be accepted on a basis other than femininity. There is nothing wrong with this, so long as there is no desire to practice applied witchery, as sex, sentiment, or wonder must accompany such a pursuit. Intellectualism, for its own sake, seldom has any place in the behavior pattern of the witch, unless one can cleverly combine it with sex and wonder themes. This would produce a glamorous lady mad doctor wearing a skimpy laboratory smock and working amidst the surroundings and equipment of Frankenstein's workshop. Such a woman would be expected to be highly articulate, as it would be consistent with her image. Undoubtedly, she will find many men that would gladly submit to her experiments. It should be obvious that in such a case, even pseudo-intellectualism is in order, as it is all part of the game. If you find yourself inclined towards placing verbosity above your physical attributes, you must learn how to act stupid, especially if your physical attributes are lavish. When I say stupid, I mean stupid. Overcompensation is the only means that can be employed to artificially bring an overbalanced situation back to a central balance point. This is one law that applies in all phases of magic. 
If you are a nut on using big words, you'll have to force yourself to check your speech. Don't worry that you'll make a fool of yourself, even if you throw in a few genuinely ignorant comments. If all else fails, you might try gum chewing. It's pretty hard to be an intellectual with a mouthful of gum. The girl who is in trouble is the one who is not very bright in the first place and tries to play the cute but dumb seductress. She's simply making the worst of an already bad situation. The girl who is really intelligent can always afford to act less so, but the girl who tries to act and talk in an, in an intelligent manner but who lacks common sense will always fail. Any dumb bell can learn a mouthful of big words, yet be at a loss when it comes to thinking anything out for herself. Such people are educated morons, and if they could be shrunk down and feathers glued on them, would outsell parrots, hands down. Men do appreciate women with brains, but don't ever kid yourself for one minute that you can use a totally intellectual approach as a magical weapon when bewitching a man. His first thoughts will always be based on your appearance. Once you have bedazzled him, you may allow him to realize you are intelligent as well. Then he will think he hit the jackpot when he met you. Intelligence is always of secondary importance in enchanting men, although it should eventually be apparent to any man who is himself intelligent. No girl likes to be thought of as stupid, yet there is a vast difference between real stupidity and a sensible restraint from the use of overbearing and high-flown pseudo-intellectualism. If such tasteful restraint from unnecessary technical and scholarly verbosity is what you would consider stupidity, then you'd best study stupidity and learn it well. Those glasses can really mess your eyes up <clears throat> when pulling them right off. We had another section end. The next one is going to be how to charm a married man. <sighs> I don't know if my wife wants me to read this one. <laughs> oh, stupid dad jokes. All right, you're waiting for a neural link to see some total environment synth sex. That Frankenstein's nurse scene sounds stimulating. Yeah, dude. Hey, you know what? I, Terry Gar in Young Frankenstein is the perfect film embodiment of that. Oh, would you like a Ronze? Oh boy, would I? Oh man, Terry Gar. Even, Terry Gar is so fantastic. Um, Mr. Mom is another great Terry Gar flick. If you guys haven't seen it, Michael Keaton's great too. Of course, it's Michael Keaton. But Terry Gar, my goodness gracious, that woman is stunning. Ugh. you're welcome, Deacon. Um, I highly recommend you guys buy this yourselves. There's actually like a legal um, uh, ebook version of it too, I think. Like from the publisher, not like a knockoff. So, you know, you can always refer to it again. And again, this is one of those th uh, uh, volumes that for a guy to read it once through or maybe twice through or something just to get the understanding of it, fine. But if you're a witch, not just a woman, but if you're a witch, you should own this and it should have notes all over it because you're trying to find yourself in it and how to manipulate others through it and you can't do that by watching this like honestly you cannot you have to own this book it's great right Joaquin <laughs> oh man all right I would say this should be number one and then warlock can be number two if you if you need the two together 
um, because this is a primer for everything that's discussed in Warlock, like everything. All right, let's get going here. How to charm a married man. In bewitching a married man, the most important thing to consider is his potential guilt at entering into a relationship with you. Most men have such guilt, although they seldom admit it to even themselves. In order to avoid the conscience problem, it is necessary to apply certain rules of witchery. You must consider your purpose in bewitching him. Are you in love with him? Are you searching for the man and feel you have found it in him? Does he appeal, appear mainly for, from a sexual urge? Are you chiefly interested in him for a playmate? Do you wish to get married? Are you looking for a sugar daddy? All these questions must be considered. If you are in love, or think you are, and you have marriage in the back of your mind, then he must be dissatisfied to a great extent with his present wife before you will stand the slightest chance of gaining your ultimate goal. He must theoretically still be searching for the right woman, and his present marriage, though perhaps pleasant, still leaves him unfulfilled. If you can see the earmarks of such a situation, you stand a chance of success. Don't ever make the mistake of going by what he tells you, though. Base your analysis of his marital situation on the information you can gain from other sources, as he will invariably tell you everything is bleak if he wants to get you in the sack badly enough. If he appeals to you primarily because you have a yen for his body, seduction is a duck soup. A married playmate is usually the safest kind, and you have the knowledge at all times that he must be desirable to someone else, or he wouldn't be married. If your motivations are mostly sexual, a great deal as to his desirability can be foretold by checking out his wife. If she is sadly lacking in female attributes and is dull, stupid, plain, and without personality, he probably won't be much better once you get to know him. If a couple, who are attracted to each other in the beginning as a result of opposite natures, live together for any length of time, each is bound to pick up qualities and traits of the other. If his wife is utterly devoid of any quality, he probably is too, unless, as previously mentioned, it is a mismatch. When shopping for a lover, however, don't concentrate on men whom you must rescue, but on those who would have made it obvious that they can get a desirable woman but might want to sample what you have to offer as an addition to what they already have. Remember, <clears throat> remember, it's better to share a good thing than to have the whole pie if it's moldy. If you're looking for a sugar daddy, married men are usually your best bet, for their unconscious need to assuage their guilt will make them much more generous than the single man, who not only lacks the habit of obligation and responsibility towards a woman, but often actually does whatever he can to avoid it, hence his single status. It is a fact that men with responsibilities will always take on more, but the shirker of responsibility will fight hardest to avoid it. The confirmed bachelor wants the fun of marriage, but not the responsibility. When I speak of marriage, I mean committed cohabitation, where two people are living with each other as man and wife, even if no formal marriage had taken place. This is a very important factor to consider in the light of present social mores. As marriage is only as valid as it is as its solidity, and if all you are interested in is a certificate a certificate and you've chosen a man who is already married as a means to obtain it, you might as well forget it. The odds are against you and you best do your diploma hunting with a single guise as your quarries. There are still plenty of choice specimens who will have been so 
anesthetized by swarms of defeminized women that they appear heterosexually defunct. The proper use of the law of the forbidden will often awaken lustful thoughts in men who would think, who you would think don't care, thereby rousing them from their torpor. If formalized marriage is utmost in your mind, this type of single man is best, as he hasn't had much experience fighting off nuptially-minded females, mainly because he hasn't allowed himself to show the slightest romantic interest in the sterile slaves to fashion that have crept around him. Regardless of what your motivations might be, the first trick to learn when bewitching a man is to let him think you are married too. This will relieve him of much of that unconscious guilt of consorting with you in the first place. Buy yourself a cheap wedding ring or engagement wedding set. These are easily obtained in dime stores. Be sure you have pictures in your purse of your kids too. Of course, if you really are married, you'll already have these accoutrements. Make sure the pictures of your children fit your image. Use your nieces or nephews or cousins' photos. The more convincing you can be as a love-starved, frustrated, married woman, the easier it will be. You will ease his conscience on one hand and employ the law of the forbidden on the other. No married man likes to hear about how wonderful your husband is, so play the misunderstood wife bit to the hilt. As an alternative, you can use the story that your husband is a nice guy, but he has his activities on the side, so he lets you have yours. Whatever you do, though, don't make it appear as though your husband is a pathetically devoted man who is waiting up for you, who is playing him for the fool. Men have a way of feeling sorry for that type, probably because he can often identify themselves with them, and you'll find he won't be so quick to get involved if it means contributing to the hurt of such a nice guy. In reality, these nice guys are often getting quite a sexual kick out of their wives making it with other men while they sit home and read the funny papers. Your quarry won't stop and think of it in that light, however, should you hit him with the poor sap at home story. Instead, make your husband out as either a nice guy but a swinger, or a callous jerk who goes out with the boys, stays late at the office, insults you in front of your friends, never so much as kisses you, drinks up his salary, doesn't give a damn when you try to look nice for him, and only cares if you're not home in time to fix his dinner. Concerning your appearance, try to get a look at his wife. If it is apparent that she is, or at least once was, his ideal physical type, you have a sound basis in which to establish your appearance. Take whatever physical factors in his wife's appearance that are possible for you to emulate and do them one better. If his wife is skinny, get a little bit skinnier than she. If she is plump, gain weight. If she is quiet, be quiet. Don't think that by showing him something his wife isn't, he'll necessarily get enthused. More often than not, he'll only feel uncomfortable around you because you are too alien. A man doesn't really want the opposite of his wife in another woman. The fact that she is another woman is usually variety enough. Any similarities to his wife will make him more at ease with the feeling that he's known you much longer than he has. There are certain vicariousnesses a married man often feels in knowing that the ostensibly married woman with whom he is cavorting could well be his own wife. He knows it isn't his wife, but the fact that she could be also acts as a conscience easer for his own actions. Many single girls who want to charm their married bosses will find it impossible to play the role of a married woman as their true status will be known to their employers. If you are one of these, don't despair as you have a good chance to employ a full-time barrage of flattery, thereby building up his ego sufficiently to compensate for the guilt he might feel in getting to know you better. 
Since you're in a position to be near him eight hours a day, five days a week, you have a monopoly on him over his wife already. No matter how devoted she might be, he still sees more of you. If he is an office manager, impress him with your feelings that he should be the big boss. If he is the big boss, tell him how much of a responsibility he has working with others who don't seem to have the sense of responsibility that they should. Make him feel that it is only through his fortitude and benign understanding that things keep going. Convince him that you want to help him. And it's not just because it's a job. Be sexy. Be humble. Be humble at all times. Don't play the role of the efficiency expert who has all the answers and knows his business better than he. If such is the case, he should be the one to discover it and solicit your advice. If you have buttered him up enough, he will come to you for advice, but you must demonstrate humility at all times. Instead of criticizing other women in the office, be more humble than they. Show respect for their positions if they have seniority, You, uh, yet you do a better job. In short, don't start inter-office friction that will make his job more difficult. It's your job to make his day run smoothly, so he won't wish he were at home with his wife instead of on the job with you. You find that you won't have to criticize the other women. He'll do it for you. He'll start drawing comparisons and feeling you should have seniority over them. You'll have pumped up his old ego like a Goodyear blimp. And the bigger man's ego is, the less guilt he will feel at having a good time. After all, when charming a married man, strip him of as much guilt as is possible, while maintaining enough vicariousness to add spice to your relationship. If your affair is to be a lasting one, or you feel you have a good candidate for divorce and remarriage, be cautious about breaking the news that you aren't really married. If you merely want to maintain a meaningful but unmarried relationship, it won't usually matter, for once you have established your beachhead, the truth can come out concerning your single status. 90% of all married men will quickly shy from the idea, however, of dumping their present wife to acquire a new one, unless the present wife is obviously not for them. Any single woman who takes up with a man who has been married for many years, with children whom he loves, stands little chance of breaking up the marriage. She is deluded if she thinks the answer lies in throwing a curse on his wife, so she will die and leave the way clear for a new marriage. I have seen so many examples of this type of situation that I wonder at its prevalence. The typical story is the single woman in her 30s, who has never been married and is desperately in love with a man who is older by several years. The object of her love has been married to the same woman for 20 or more years, with children and possibly grandchildren. Our would-be seductress often has remained a virgin until well into her late 20s or 30s, and may have even had her first affair with the man whom she now wishes to marry. Invariably, the married man's wife is as sound as any woman could be who has been married to the same man this long. In other words, the married couple know each other pretty well. The glamour has settled, but a strong bond exists. What is Miss Desperate to do? How will she pry her stolid lover away from the woman that is anathema to her? The first thing that crosses her mind is to get rid of the wife. If only something could happen to the old biddy. Of course, the old biddy was never a young biddy while in her twenties and thirties like her unmarried rival was for so many years, and if there is anything more pathetic than an old biddy, it's a young one. Naturally, murder is not the answer, though you can be sure it has crossed Miss Desperate's mind. A curse! That's the answer! Curse the wife that she should drop dead, and everything will be coming up roses. 
If Miss Desperate were to seek my help in the matter, I would tell her to concentrate on getting more passion out of the man and quit thinking about cursing a woman who has done nothing but made a good home for a man and his children for many years. I would recommend a love spell to maintain a fulfilling relationship between her and the man for whom she claims soul-searing love. No, nothing doing. Miss Desperate doesn't want that kind of relationship. She wants to get rid of the missus. She wants to then get married. By this time, the crystal becomes clear. Miss Desperate is not in love with the man. If she was, she wouldn't care if his wife was alive or not, so long as she could be assured of many years of romance and security. For in most of these cases, the guilt-stricken husband would gladly support the girlfriend, and it is quite strange how many such cases involve men who are well-to-do. In so many words, Miss Desperate has shown her hand. She has been trying to get him to dump his wife, the worst possible thing to do, thereby adding to his guilt at being with her under the quilts. Even if the missus should oblige Miss Desperate and graciously drop dead, a phenomenon would develop that would almost seem poetic justice. Hubby would grieve terribly at the loss of his dear wife and companion. Conscience-stricken at all the horsing around he had done with Miss Desperate, he would avoid seeing her, Contrary to the role into which she would like to be placed, a devoted love who stuck by him and would, would now be placed, uh, who would now be needed by one who could at last avail himself of her. Miss Desperate now finds herself a pariah, a scarlet woman who wished his dear wife dead. Six months pass, and the lonely widower is consoled by his children, goes off to Europe or their cabin at the lake, buries himself in his business, and meets a sweet young thing somewhere along the way. A breath of freshness is she, this pretty thing of nineteen or twenty, in fact a great deal like his wife when he had met her, and with tenderness and grace he takes her, for she does love him, not just out of pity, but out of respect, and they are married and his children are a little perplexed, but happy that he is happy. This is why I would never throw a curse under such circumstances, though I have no compunction when the vicious cry out to be destroyed. If you are one of the many Miss Desperates, consider how real your love for him is. Do you really want him out of choice? Or is your pride in grave danger of destruction because you can't afford to lose that which came too little and too late? Pride is a wonderful thing, but it must be properly exercised like anything else. And prudery is not the best exercise, as it often atrophies more than it strengthens. Whew, that was a long one. I have nothing to say on the matter. <laughs> I'm happily married. <laughs> what do you guys say about it? Marriage always spurs some indulgence versus compulsion debates for you. It's interesting because uh, I've been married double digits over 20 years and uh, it evolves. And if you are able to evolve with it while still maintaining some sense of who you are, it can be very interesting. And, you know, I'm very happily married after this long. Um, it's not for everyone, though, certainly. And I don't think it should be for everyone either. I mean, you know, whatever works for you. Polyamory. Um, uh, I don't know. Monogamy, if that's your thing. Marriage, not married. 
<laughs> I wonder, Sean, if she pulled you away, <laughs> if she employed some of the tricks in this book. <clears throat> I'm getting a sinus issue. Yeah, there you go. All right, what else do we have here? Oh, man, I think I just ripped my book. No. All right, we got a couple short ones here. Half an hour left. Giving in. Women assume themselves to be the ultimate romanticists. They feel that any man to whom they sexually succumb must surely be forgotten insofar as any lasting romance is concerned. If a man is to be landed, it is thought, a girl must keep him in abeyance until his commitment has been made. This common type of Victorian behavior still seems to serve as the standard. The fallacy of such an inhibiting form of conduct can easily be discovered by any witch who is willing to objectively experiment. In reality, it is the man who carefully plans his campaign to snare the woman of his choice, and when that woman finally responds to his maneuvers, his ego will not let him readily discard that for which he has so strenuously labored. The woman who thinks that she will easily lose a man whom she has inspired to pursue her will actually find that she has to often than not. The surest way to lose a man whom you have bewitched, using sex or otherwise, is to worry about it. It is not the act of sexual submission that causes a man to leave you, but the desperation you project at the fear of losing him. Practically every case of outright rejection I've encountered is engendered by women who have only themselves to blame. These girls place a man in such a defensive role at having ruined them that even those who might otherwise have sold their souls for the woman in question wind up sneaking out while the getting's good. Why do so many women play the game of if only, if you're only going to play with me, it's got to be for keeps, simply because they have been so brainwashed by dubious moralisms that they would rather be struck with a man who turns out to be a complete washout and retain their honor than to realize that sex to a man does not necessarily mean love. The male romantic prognosis is exactly the reverse of the female, and every witch should learn this rule well. Most women must first feel romantic stirrings, which, if strong enough, can lead to sexual encounters. In males, however, the most lasting loves start with sexual activity. If a man has an opportunity to skip the bullshit and sexually release himself with a woman whom he desires shortly after meeting her, any real feelings of romantic love which might exist will subsequently be able to be seen in their true light. The idyllic yearnings of the young man who demands not sex of his beloved will seldom result in any mature and lasting relationship. Men can be trapped using sex as a weapon. It's done every day. Very few meaningful and lasting romances or marriages have ever been attained as a result of a deliberate denial of courtship sex, however. True, some have succeeded in spite of sexual denial, but hardly ever because of it. If a woman can free herself from the desperation she often feels for a man to whom she has given herself, his very pride will profit him from hastily rejecting what he considers to be his conquest, unless he is one of the earlier mentioned types who only respects a woman who is tougher than he and who, by her denials and asserted kicks to the groin, gains his respect. If this is the kind of man you want, you must do more than simply deny him sexually, though. You must literally treat him like a worm. Yeah, I'm not down with that. <laughs> but, uh, all right. 
I mean, to the point of that section, uh, the the first thing to destroy a marriage or a relationship is to worry that it's being destroyed. And the truth is, it's usually not in both parties' minds. It's only in one of them. I had to get over massive insecurities um, early on in my marriage and before that, my relationship, um, where I was just jealous for literally no reason, but it almost destroyed my relationship. She wasn't looking for someone else. She was happy where she was, but my fears were driving her away. As soon as you get rid of that needless hangup and realize that they're with you, they're with you for a reason, things usually tend to go better. So, stop worrying. This is starting to become a chore. <clears throat> the folly in trying to charm a self-aware homosexual. Of all the titles I never thought I would ever read in all of my life. <laughs> <clears throat> the folly in trying to charm a self-aware homosexual. You won't have to do too much to charm a homophile who is firmly ensconced in exclusively masculine relationships, except to treat him as a non-sexual manner as possible. In this instance, I mean charm, as it refers to befriending, influencing, and ingratiating, not seducing. And in those areas, you will proceed in much the same way as you would when dealing with other women, which will be explained a little later. If you want to seduce a well-adjusted homosexual man, and there are plenty, you'll most likely wind up as one big fool. Some gals just can't get it through their thick skulls that there are men who won't succumb to their charms no matter what they do in the way of enticement. I have known would-be witches to get their sights set on a handsome man whom they know to be homosexual, fuss over him, cook for him, smother him with kisses, among other things, all to no avail. Actually, such frantic antics are nothing more than attempts to reform the homosexual, usually conducted by girls who are lesbians but don't know it. In their sexual uncertainty, they see a man's body but a non-aggressive, safe man who isn't about to outdo her own need to dominate the situation. Hence, she is the rapist acting against a man who is powerless to resist. There's only one problem. She has nothing to put inside him, and he has, hasn't the enthusiasm to attain the erection necessary to praise her as a woman, nor anything but revulsion at the thought of performing orally upon her, as girls just aren't his thing. The whole business winds up in utter frustration. For what she really would like to do, she hasn't the proper sexual equipment. If she had such equipment, she would be another man, and everything would be hunky-dory. The fact that it isn't unconsciously motivates her desire to reform him in order to get even. One such deeply frustrating experience can lead to a veritable crusade in which no eligible homosexual is safe from her massive doses of pulchritude, should he cross her path. If you have any designs in any of these beautiful gay men, you best study the entire spectrum of the gay world, and while you're at it, delve a little into yourself. <laughs> I have always, um, I have always ascribed the idea 
ascribe. I have always proposed the idea that sexuality, gender aside, this volume is for literally everyone. I'm not 100% sure about that anymore. Um, I've heard rumors about other volumes in the works. And uh, I'd be interested to read them because it really is a foreign concept, you know, that I, I just truly don't understand. So, uh, I don't know. Uh, all of you uh, bi and homosexual males out there, do you think your own, your own as in, and not just males, I mean females as well, uh, do you think a volume exclusively to catered to your sexuality would be beneficial? Do you think it would speak to your condition differently than the doctor has to these male and female norms that he's speaking to here? And I'm, I'm interested because this volume really delves down into the psychology of gender, not the sexuality of individual as much. And so in my limited experience and knowledge, I may be talking out of my ass here and I fully admit that. Most homosexual individuals I've found do gravitate to one gender identity over another. And so the psychological norms inherent within those gender identities still seem to be relative, uh, relevant, I should say. Uh, and so uh, I'm curious. I, I think it's interesting. It's an interesting conversation to have. Would a, a volume exclusively catering to uh, homosexual or queer peoples be that much different, psychologically speaking, than this? I think it's interesting. All right, all right. Oh, I didn't see what he said. All right, let's, let's keep going. The lesbian witch. Lesbians often make very capable witches if they can attract men, bewitch them and accomplish whatever their ends might be without allowing themselves to be drawn into emotional involvements with them. If a lesbian has the guile to employ the most flagrant external devices of the heterosexual witch without resorting to clothes and hairstyles that will give her away, she can go the limit of enchantment. Because she is built the way she is, she can still employ her body as any other woman should the need arise. She is not dependent on an erection in order to function sexually, which is the pitfall of the homosexual male who may be required to play a heterosexual role. The lesbian will find that the men who are most naturally attracted to her will occupy the lower half of the synthesizer clock. Hence, because she is often lusted after as a dominant female, she's not expected to readily succumb sexually. Another factor in the lesbian witch's favor is the fact that the lesbianism has become an increasingly popular fetish. And if a man is turned on by lesbians, it doesn't matter much what you look like or anything else. You'll find a type of phenomenon occurs that I mentioned in the previous section, except with the sexes reversed. The male lesbian lover is usually a homosexual who doesn't know it, but unlike the female lover of male homosexuals who is unaware of her lesbian tendencies, the male lover of lesbians fares much better at the hands of his beloved. Any suffering on his part is welcome, and the wise lesbian witch will always bear this in mind. He doesn't really want to win, but to be placed at your mercy, 
and the bitchier you act towards a lesbian-loving male, the more frantic he'll get. These men are the exception to the rule concerning bitchiness towards men. You can insult them without mercy, and they'll eat it up. And if they start to become surly, all that is necessary is one cheerful word from you. If you are a lesbian, take full advantage of the compulsion you will often encounter if your fetish finder smokes it out. Lesbians, like redheads, are usually either loved or hated, and this is one of the pitfalls of the lesbian witch, should she show her hand to the lesbian hater. She may wish to charm. It is for this reason that you should move on swiftly to an apparent heterosexual image, should your fetish finder not get the violently positive reaction it will if he is hung up on lesbians. Another pitfall, and a much graver one, is the prospect of an emotional reaction to the girlfriend or wife of the man you set out to bewitch. This can often touch off an unconscious resentment towards the very person you wish to enchant, and try as you may, those old vibrations will come through loud and clear, signaling to the man that he better keep his eye on you and not because he find you attractive. If this sort of situation occurs in connection with one of the previously mentioned lesbian-loving males, it's not so bad, and who knows, you might even develop a threesome. But if your quarry is one of those other types and you get a yen for his lady, your chances are about as slim as a 19-cent hamburger. Insofar as your in-group activities are concerned, the same rules of personality typing applies as with male-female classifying. Just find your position on the synthesizer and proceed with whatever relative evaluation applies to the other gal. This stuff is out of my, uh, out of my, I just don't have any experience, and so I can't speak to it. So, sorry. Hmm. 15 minutes. I might be able to finish this chapter. All right. We got one last section. What do you guys uh, think? Is there something uh, you have to add to this? You're heterosexual, but biromantic. I've never heard that phrase before. That's interesting. I can dig that. Uh, you're bi, but you prefer more feminine androgynous. Right on. It is, I, I find it interesting. <sighs> Behavior aside, in my age of growing up, in my generation, we would never, <laughs> ever have thought about going on to, I mean of course there was no internet but we would never have gone into a, a, a social room like this chat room and declare our sexuality or sexual preference it just was not it was you if you're a man you're a man you love women even if you didn't love women around other men you love women and that's how it was if you're a woman you're shy and dainty and need to be rescued by men and you love men but nowadays <laughs> I, I feel old saying that. But you have to understand the shift that is taken in such a short amount of time. Especially when you're coming from a position of ignorance to the counterculture that was always there all along. But society dictated it wasn't allowed to be out in the open. I find it interesting. And nowadays... <laughs> Alan. All right. All right. <laughs> Maybe I should just stick to the book. <clears throat> you know what I'm doing after I uh, finish this is 
stripping out all of my commentary, so it's just the readings, and putting it out on my Reading Aloud channel, so that for those who just want the content, it will be there without my bantering. But, here we go. Gestures, mannerisms, toilet habits, and assorted ploys. An abundance of masculine development manifests itself in anything symbolically aggressive. Hence, the dominant male will blow his nose and the feminine or passive male will sniffle or draw in. Through the mannerisms of the nose and its functions, must, uh, much can be told. The male trait is that of ejaculation, the female of drawing in, the penis as opposed to the vagina. The more masculine one is, the more inclined he is to blow out through the nostrils. Men use more handkerchiefs for nose blowing than do women for this reason. A predominantly female woman uses a handkerchief primarily for dabbing and will only blow her nose if she has a severe cold and then infrequently. A woman may shed tears profusely, but have to be told by her man to blow her nose, and she will sniffle until a handkerchief is proffered. The term sniveling has long been associated with weakness, and the occasional misnomer, weaker sex, as applied to women, is immediately brought to mind. Actually, the passive resistance required to retain bodily waste requires more control, more constraint, and hence more work than the masculine trait of expulsion or ejaculation of excreta. The more masculine traits a woman has, the more she blows her nose. A feminine man will sniffle and rarely use a handkerchief. This has nothing to do with homosexuality, but with male-female principles and how they are balanced in the individual. Retention of bodily fluids is a female trait. This includes withholding nasal mucus, feces, urine, anything involving the carrying of or bearing of body wastes. Constipation is more common in women than in men, and during pregnancy, when it's added factor of retention, constipation becomes even more frequent a problem. Watch a man's toilet habits. Does he make sure he relieves himself immediately before retiring to bed or embarking on a situation where retention and subsequent discomfort will ensue? Does he go to the bathroom, even though it is not yet absolutely necessary, just in case he might have to go a short while later? If so, his retention feminine traits are in the minority. All acts of caring represent a woman's duty. A common example of this is in the woman who will retain her urine to the point of impending incontinency, suddenly hastening to a restroom barely in time to avoid wetting herself. A further development of this phenomenon is the woman who, possibly inebriated, has become incontinent and, in doing so, loses her sense of duty and becomes easy sexual prey for the first man to come along. Incontinence of urine during intense sexual excitement has proven embarrassing to many women, but is completely understandable when one considers the parallels in the act of at first holding in, then giving way to sexual abandon with its ensuing release of duty. While we're on the subject of masculine-feminine counterparts, Let's take a basic, basic sitting habits into consideration. A man with an abundance of male traits will make room for his genitals at every opportunity, and so will sit with his legs either apart, sprawled out, one ankle resting on one other knee, etc. The masculine libido female will also be inclined to sit in this fashion. The man with a basically feminine makeup will sit with his legs closer together, and if they are crossed, the genitals will be tightly tucked between them, drawn in, and one knee resting tightly on top of the other. Using a variant of a previous example then, the unladylike exposing of the area of the crotch, whether accidental or intentional, by a normally feminine woman is an inclination towards sexual abandon. 
Wherever you see a man sitting with his legs crossed tightly, one over the other, you may be sure he is guarding himself, quite possibly resents women for obvious reasons, and if otherwardly heterosexual, if outwardly heterosexual, limits his romantic adventures to the nearest whorehouse. You will seldom be able to change this type of man, and he is unconsciously regarding his virginity, and will most likely remain a small boy when it comes to sex, and consciously performs sexual functions only to be one of the fellows. Actually, he considers girls sissy stuff, little realizing his own sissified manifestations. This type can be seen running the gamut from the Casper Milquetoast, uh, who unconsciously hates women, to Clark Kent in Superman. Insofar as your own sitting habits are concerned, disregard completely any charm school training you might have had that tells you to sit with your legs together and your feet tucked neatly under your chair. You'll be pegged for a prude. Crossing your legs at the ankle and sitting with them off at an angle will give you a clinically supercilious look that will always appeal to a masochistic male. Unless you want to appear both frightened and frigid, don't sit with your legs pressed tightly together and your hands on both thighs. If you do, you might as well wind some rope around your knees while you're at it. Crossing your legs at the knees, resting one on the other, and entwining them like a pretzel is a definite come-on for many men, as is crossing your legs at the knees and swinging that cross leg as you talk. When facing your quarry, while seated with your legs crossed, make sure you're at a slight angle and not directly facing him. It also helps that when sitting with crossed legs, to tilt your hips, sitting on one cheek more than the other, while the hip closest to him higher than the other. When you are playing the bitch game, don't forget that putting your arms akimbo while sitting and especially while standing will always look sexy to a man. In this posture, the hands are placed on the hips, either open or making a fist, and the legs pressed firmly to the ground and slightly apart. An alternative position for the legs is with one thrust forward, bent at the knee, while the other is stiffened, thereby throwing one hip out and back and the other side. A good figure can be displayed to very good advantage with the hands on the hips, but don't overdo it and make sure it is accompanied by the proper demeanor and dialogue. Use your tongue as a means of expression. It is much more sensually stimulating to a man to see an occasional tip of the tongue flashing than a whole mouthful of 20% less cavities. Because the tongue is normally hidden, like the genitals, its exposure on a pretty girl is a very stimulating thing to behold. Certain movements in the course of everyday activities can easily be employed as bewitchment devices. A simple act like alighting from an automobile is a good example. A girl can follow all the prescribed rules of ladylike conduct when leaving her car seat, maintaining a firm grip on the hem of her skirt, her legs tightly together as she gingerly tries to extricate herself in a manner reminiscent of Harry Houdini escaping from a padlocked milk can. Or she can get more mileage from the law of the forbidden than she can from the compact she's driving. All it requires is the right audience, and you'll be running neck and neck with the girl in the topless club we discussed earlier. You'll be sure to give some poor, lucky man a vision that will stay with him and ensure... Uh, ensure you of added witch power. After opening the car door to get out, swing your legs outside as you normally would, with a cursory tug at your hem to establish the fact that you are proper and to supply a fertile ground for the law of the forbidden. Then, as you're almost ready to stand up, suddenly remember that you left your keys in the ignition, or purse on the seat, 
For a longer opportunity, you can use the ploy of suddenly remembering the need to find something in your purse or a package that you almost forgot to remove. Rummaging among several packages in the seat next to you is ideal. Keep the car door open, forgetting all about it, as you whirl around to attend to your almost neglected parcel on the seat. With one leg outside the car, pull the other in as you twist your body. If you maneuver correctly and employ the right body English, that nice man trying to pull the bicycle in the back of his station wagon will get a better look at your panties than your husband has in the last five years. After you've finished the task in the seat next to you that has so thoroughly absorbed your interest for the last several seconds, straighten around in your seat to once again alight from the car. When you notice where your skirt has crept, act very concerned and quickly and embarrassingly pull it down as far as it'll go. Primly clamping your legs together, of course. Oh yes, in the interest of safe driving, it is not recommended that this be practiced on freeways or whenever a heavy flow of traffic is present. If you have small children while tending your toddlers at play, you have dozens of opportunities to employ the law of the forbidden, and the psychological implications in looking up a pretty woman's or a pretty mama's dress are too obvious to even mention. Slightly less Freudian, but nonetheless effective, are little doggies that need lots of untangling and attention when they are out for walks. A frisky poodle on the end of a leash is good for more ups and downs than a game of squat tag. Big doggies can have their advantage, too when it comes to making a spectacle of a perfectly respectable girl. I have a large Doberman who has a penchant for putting his nose under ladies' dresses and lifting them up, and whether you believe it or not, I did not teach him to do such a thing. Of course, there is the old trick of dropping your groceries and having to retrieve them. This is similar to the automobile bedazzler in that it enables you to start out with an absolutely irreproachable modeling school crouch which can develop through twisting around to collect all the stuff into a real eye-opener for any males present. I know one witch who can drop groceries so they land in perfect formation. As a little girl, she was the Jack's champion of her block, little realizing it would lead to bigger things. Since women started wearing pants, one of the finest institutions for learning the law of the forbidden, the carnival and amusement park, has all but bitten the dust. The various rides supplied opportunities for proper ladies to expose their charms in a manner far superior to leaping on a chair and shrieking, Eek! A mouse! while hoisting the skirt. As a girl was spun, pummeled, whirled, turned upside down, and every other way, knowledge of many of the tricks this chapter contains was unnecessary as the machines did it all for you. The funhouse supplied slide barrels, rocking horses, and the music that was to become the anthem of the Law of the Forbidden, the sound of compressed air as it is shot through what is called, in carnival's ease, the blowhole. Steeplechase Park at Coney Island had a special section of seats for spectators to sit and watch the girls' dresses blow up. The shrill screams and wild shrieks of the women whose underwear was revealed by the blast of air were the songs of the sirens to the many voyeurs who would come early. Find a good seat and stay late. When I worked around amusement parks and carnivals, it didn't surprise me to see the compulsion this spectacle produced in men who would linger longer before the blowhole than they would before the pros who shook and shimmied on the platform of the girly show and were considerable less. What did fascinate me, however, were the women who would go through the fun house with their escorts, squealing loudly each time a jet of air would send their skirts up, acting all the while as though they wished they had never consented to submit themselves to such indignities. Occasionally, the next night one would return, 
with a different man, or perhaps alone and perhaps dressed just a little sexier, with her makeup a little heavier and go through the same ordeal as she had the night previous. Another thing that impressed me was how the women who were being attacked by that apparently searing blast from out of the flames of hell would often become helpless, immobile. They remind me of nothing so much as deer caught in a spotlight, which knows it is completely exposed, yet does not move in its fascination for the situation. One would think the sound of the hissing of thousands of serpents, or a cataract or the maelstrom judging from its effect on some of the girls. Now, scientists have a name for that kind of noise. They call it white sound. That's the end of chapter six. And that's the end of the show. Thanks for watching, everyone. Thanks for coming in the chat room. Thanks for uh, chatting it up with everyone else and with me. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time and attention. It really means a lot. Um, I'm going to have to go through your comments because I miss them while I'm reading, of course. But I dig that you guys are having them. And I hope that you guys are getting something out of this. I know I have. And uh, every time you read it, just like the Satanic Bible, at different times in your life, you glimmer something new. Or something takes a new meaning. And that's what's so great about Satanism. And that's ultimately, I think, um, one of the wonderful realities behind the study-not-worship mentality is that you do discern new understandings, especially in comparison to each other. They interact really wonderfully, all of these different ideas. So, um, you're very welcome, uh, chat room. Thank you again. If you guys want to learn more about Satanism or the Church of Satan, all you got to do, check out churchofsatan.com or read the Satanic Bible. That's going to do it for me. If you guys want to support the channel, like and share the video, uh, you can always sign up to the email list. I'm doing a once a week, uh, usually on Sundays, nine cents episode. And I uh, announced that on the email list. But if you subscribe to the YouTube channel, you'll see the notice there as well. Click the little bell and it'll alert you when I go live and stuff. And that's it. Have a wonderful evening. Do not indulge too much, lest you be uh, compulsive with it. But uh, if you want to knock back a drink, knock back a drink. Hey, I'll say it, everyone.